This episode of She Explores is brought to you by Meryl. Meryl exists to give you all you need to discover the simple yet profound power of the trail. They believe the trail is for everybody and everybody. Merrill's goal is to provide thoughtfully designed, rigorously tested products that over-deliver on performance, versatility, and durability. Because when you've got air in your lungs and good shoes on your feet, you've got everything you need. Stay tuned for later in the episode, I'll talk with Erica Lang, the artist behind Woosaw Outfitters and an ambassador for Merrill. Learn more at Merrill.com. I'm Gail Straub, and you're listening to She Explores. You focus on the what ifs, you're almost manifesting the thing that you're most worried about. But if you focus on the what is, you're manifesting the good of what's occurring at that present moment. So, yeah, that's what I try and do. Focusing on what is has helped Charlene Jones in ways she never would have expected, especially last month hiking Mount Whitney, the highest mountain in the continental U.S. Charlene won't let fear paralyze her. Instead, it propels her into motion. Charlene has an adventurous spirit. She's an expat and a single mom. She was living in Oakland, California before she moved her teen daughters to London for a work opportunity that involves travel to Europe, parts of Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. She's always been that way. I'm always ready to try something new. I tend to get bored with routine. So as soon as someone raises the idea of something, you know, that I haven't done or going to a place that I haven't seen or doing something that's a little bit unusual, that kind of challenges me, my abilities, both mentally, physically, everything, um, I tend to jump on it really quick. So, so this was a no brainer. My boss came to me and said, Hey, do you want to work in London? And I said, yeah, like right there on the spot. I didn't even think about it. He was like, don't you want to talk to your family about it? I'm like, ah, they'll go. <laughs> My kids are as adventurous as me. They they totally take after me in that respect. So they were, they were all ready to go. That's so cool. How, have you always been an active person? Always, always. I did, you know, like cross country and tennis and school and not, I was not the elite athlete by any stretch of the imagination. But I was always active doing something. Um, and then when I went into law enforcement, it was a necessity, right? Because your life depends on your your level of physical activity and how physically fit you are. So it was just something that got worked into my everyday routine. So so yeah, I've been I've been active for for quite some time and and my health and and fitness has always been a priority. One because it's my job and then two it just it just became a part of my routine. So it was just uh, you know, something that I didn't think about doing. I just did it every day. Is it something that contributes to your overall happiness too? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's working out as my stress reliever. So, you know, if I've had a bad day at work, I come home and I just put my tennis shoes on and go for a run or, you know, I go to the gym and lift some weights. That's my outlet. And everybody who knows me who's in my inner circle knows that that's the outlet. So if I say, hey, it's going through a rough spot, you know, a friend will be like, well, let's go. Let's go for a run or, you know, let's go for a hike or something like that. Charlene is one of the founders of the Bay Area hiking group HEAT, which stands for Hiking Every Available Trail. To hear Charlene talk about hiking is to hear how much she loves it. I think much of what she articulates will resonate with you, too. 
it's kind of an escape from the demands and expectations of the world. It's like, it takes me to places where I can kind of unzip from the outward appearances of who I am and all the baggage that goes along with that. And then just exist as kind of pure essence in nature. It's like the ultimate way to, to commune without, without that superficial representation of who you are. You know, you can feel the ground kind of accommodate the weight of your step. You know, you hear the rhythm of your gait through the crunching of the leaves under your feet. You kind of hear the birds and the critters in the bushes. You kind of feel the sun on your face. It's, it's like the ultimate opportunity to be present in a moment. And there's no other time during the week or wherever I go that I hear or I'm conscious of those things. I'm always like, if I'm on the train getting ready to go to work, I'm thinking about what I have to accomplish that day or, you know, what's expected of me or, you know, what I need to wear for what meeting, how I should look, how I should engage people. And it's always kind of thinking one step ahead, but hiking is like being present in every step that you take, every turn that you take, every route that you take. And as you're taking it all in, you know, you may be hiking with three or four different people and you, you may have like light banter here and there, but for the most part, everybody's kind of just in their own zone, just kind of communicating with the world around them without expressing anything in words. And you find that you can finally hear yourself thinking because you're not bombarded with all these kind of external stimulus, you know, your cell phone, your text messages, social media, you kind of just tune everything out. I always find at the end of a hike that I have answers to questions that I didn't even know that I needed to ask. I have clarity on subjects that I didn't know that I needed to think about. And my level of creativity and problem solving is always heightened after a hike. It's a meditative zone that, that I go into and I always feel energized after that. And I and that's one of the, the big things that I miss too, being here in London, because when I lived in the Bay with the hiking group, we would hike every Saturday. So irrespective of what happened during the week, I would always look forward to my Saturday because that was my time to recharge and to, to problem solve and to, to have time to think. There's just, we tend to be so busy doing things Monday through Friday that, you know, you're just going from one one thing on your to-do list to another and you're not really thinking about what you're doing. And in hiking, you just have this, you know, uninterrupted time to think. So that's that's what I love about it. That's the benefit that I get. Definitely makes me want to go hiking right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you basically just articulated snippets of like what so many people have said, but like all in one in one way of saying it, which is is saying something. Like it's it's really hard to articulate how hiking can make you feel. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, I wish I could kind of share that with more people. I stumbled upon hiking just by chance. I, you know, had gone through a divorce and I was trying to, you know, meet new people, do different things or whatever. And I went to a meetup that was a hiking group and 
that kind of blossomed into into our own hiking group. I, I didn't do camping and hiking when I was a kid, so I didn't fully appreciate, you know, the benefits of being out in nature. But I definitely appreciate it now. And my and my kids have come come out with hiking with me as well, and they enjoy it too. So, you know, I just wish that more people could take advantage of that instead of kind of other things that we use to cope <laughs> with life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I could definitely rattle off a bunch of those yeah. <laughs> coping mechanisms. <laughs> hiking, running, exercising. It's how Charlene relieves her stress and strives for contentment. It's how a lot of us do. So how would you feel if it was taken away? Or if exercise could kill you? At first, I thought the doctors were joking, and I didn't believe it. In the beginning of 2018, Charlene experienced a new sensation after a run. The first time that it hit me, I'd gone for a long run and I was feeling at the top of my game. I had a good pace going. I felt like just really healthy, like that was one of the best runs that I had in a long time. And then during the cool down period, I was walking home and I started feeling like not like myself. And then by the time I got to my front door, my daughter opened the door and I was my throat was already starting to close up. I was talking like, I thought I was having a stroke because I was talking, you know, my speech was off. I couldn't breathe. And my daughter just immediately called 999, which is the emergency number here in the UK. And so they didn't, they didn't initially know like what the reaction was. It was weird. My primary doctor here in the UK suggested that it might be kind of environmental allergens. And so she said, you know, just just work work out in, inside during allergy season. But it kept happening even inside with no windows open and things like that. So that's when I got referred out to a specialist. And he was like, well, I think you have exercise-induced anaphylaxis. And I laughed, like, when he told me that in his office. Because I was like, is that really a thing? Like, I've never heard of that. I'm allergic to exercise. That sounds crazy. It's a thing. I hadn't heard of it either. Charlene's doctor showed her the research and explained that you can develop an allergy at any age. Even so, Charlene didn't want it to be true. So I kind of fought that diagnosis for a little while because I still thought, okay, this thing really exists, but I don't have it. There's no way that I can have it. So, you know, I kept on my routines. I was Googling all kinds of stuff, trying to find some alternate reason for why I was having these attacks. Couldn't find anything got referred out to some other specialists. And, you know, finally, I kept having these kind of life-threatening incidents. I just kind of had to come to terms with, this is what I have. This is this is a weird, I don't know why me, like that doesn't make sense, the, the irony of the whole situation, but this is, this is it. Now I gotta figure out what to do with it. So it was, it was frustrating because initially the doctors said, you know, you can't work out by yourself. You've got to work out in places where emergency assistance can get to you right away if something happens. Um, so that really limited me to like working out at a gym, which I don't like to do, not going on runs, you know, on trails and stuff by myself, which is what I like to do. Like when I, as a stress reliever, I want to get 
far, far away from people and, and buildings and cars. And, and, and that's my happy place, right? So all of a sudden, I'm confined to kind of this artificial environment um, to work out. So it was extremely frustrating. And then I started dragging the kids along with me on the run. And they didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had to come up with, with other things to do. And, um, and the doctors actually took me off exercise for a little while. But then we realized that taking me off exercise actually made me more sensitive to attacks, like my tolerance level went down. So the um, recommendation was that to rebuild my resistance, I needed to work out, which was scary in and of itself, because they're asking me to do the very thing that could kill me, right? Um, And there's no rhyme or reason to when it's going to happen. So it's like, you know, it's like going into a dark room knowing there's a, a murderer in there and you don't have a weapon. You can't see anything and you don't have anything, a weapon to defend yourself. And you're just at the mercy of whether or not the homicide suspect is going to kill you that time that you go into the room. You never know when it's going to happen because it doesn't I don't have an I don't have an attack every time. It's just sometimes I draw the short stick <laughs> and I never know when that's going to be. So it's, it's an un, it's an uneasy feeling. So yeah, that that's been a roller coaster for me. She did an allergy test and found that she was severely allergic to Timothy grass, which is native to the United Kingdom. She likely got an overexposure that triggered her condition. So it's the end of 2018, and Charlene spent a year getting at least one anaphylactic episode a month during the cool down after exercise. She started to learn how to manage the symptoms and the cycle of an attack. So the first couple times that those attacks happen, you're, there's no way for you to forecast what the outcome is going to be. So it's, it's really unsettling. But I think the more that I had them and I became familiar with the cycle that they go through, the more confident I became with managing it and the more optimistic I would become in, okay, I, I can ride this one out. This one doesn't feel as bad as this you know, the one before, or it feels like I took the medicine at an earlier time than I did the last time. And so I could kind of, in my mind, as I'm going through these incidents, I'm kind of doing the the calculations of the probability that I can get through this one too. Each time I just become more confident that I can manage it. So that's been, that's been helpful. When I first spoke to Charlene, she told me about her exercise-induced anaphylaxis, which she's still managing, and she also told me she was planning on climbing Mount Whitney. It was hard for me to reconcile the two until I got to know Charlene a bit better. So how did wanting to hike Mount Whitney come up? So it's crazy. It's kind of ironic, but... I had started the hiking group Heat with two other friends in 2015. So I've always been a hiker. Um, And even though I was still in the UK, there were certain hikes that require permits that we tend to have everybody in the hiking group put in for the permit, you know, just to increase the likelihood that we may be able to get a permit. So even though I was in London, I went ahead and put in for the permit just to increase the odds that the group would be able to hike Whitney. And this was before I got my diagnosis, I believe it was, um, because you put in for it the season prior to the hike. Mm. So when I put in for it, I wasn't thinking that 
I wouldn't be able to do it. But lo and behold, <laughs> we only got two permits this year and one of them was mine. So, so the irony of the person with this exercise induced anaphylaxis getting the permit, I thought, what are the chances of that? It felt like a challenge from the universe. Like, okay, so you finally got a permit to hike Mount Whitney, but it's dangerous. What are you going to do? You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, it was just really weird. So we got the permit and it was for 15 people. So basically at that point I had, you know, 14 other hikers depending on my ability to come through on the hike because you can't transfer the person on the permit, can't transfer it to another person. So I had to go. Wow. I had to go and I had to make it. So yeah, that's how, that's how Whitney came about. I couldn't back out at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> We'll hear more from Charlene after this. Merrill exists to give you all you need to discover the simple yet profound power of the trail. I talked to artist and Merrill ambassador Erica Lang and learned a bit about hiking in Michigan. Erica runs a cool shop called Wusa Outfitters in Grand Rapids, where she also prints gorgeous woodcuts. Okay, if you do come to Michigan, the hikes you should definitely check out, the North Country Trail is a big one and it runs, I think, all the way through the state up to Pictured Rocks. And that's one of my favorite places to hike in the summer. It's definitely a road trip from where I live. I'm in Grand Rapids, so it's about like a three or four hour drive up there. But there's just these beautiful, huge rock formations lining Lake Superior. And the colors, I mean, that's where they get their name, Pictured Rocks, from all the minerals and stuff. They're just like super vibrant red and all different types of colors, turquoise. It's gorgeous. Do you have any artwork that you, like anything you've created that's inspired from there? Yeah, I actually did a piece for Merrill. It was the, it's actually a map of the Upper Peninsula and I carved all of my favorite places up there. There's this one rock formation called Lover's Leap in Pictured Rocks and I carved that in the piece. We sell it on shirts and stickers and stuff at Woosa and then um, Merrill did a whole campaign with it last spring. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, it was a really fun project to work on together. Stay tuned for more stories with Merrill this summer. And to learn more in the meantime, visit Merrill.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-L-L.com. We're back. Charlene had just a few months to train, and she had some real obstacles. First off, there aren't high mountains super accessible to London, at least not ones where she could get the kind of elevation training she would have liked to have gotten. Second, she's still dealing with the exercise-induced anaphylaxis. It could happen at any time, so she couldn't go out for long runs or hikes on her own. Charlene was determined, though, and improvised with a treadmill and a Peloton bike. If she could help it, she wasn't going to let anything get in the way of climbing Mount Whitney. But she knew she needed some help. <laughs> the doctor was like, either either find a companion that you can rely on that's going to be there all the time, that will work out with you all the time, and that can be your kind of emergency response person, or, you know, come up with another alternative. And so I said, well, I can't find anybody to work out with. Nobody, like, keeps up with me at that level. And, you know, you can't demand that of another person. Um, so then we came up with the dog idea. And I thought, okay, well, that works. I'm an animal lover. And... Um, you know, if he can retrieve and detect and alert on a, an incident, then I can take him out on trails and, you know, I'll feel 
comfortable and confident with having that extra resource available for me. Because there were times even in my house where I was working out downstairs and once the attack started happening, I it would hit so hard and fast that I couldn't even get upstairs to get my EpiPen. So even you know being home alone, um, having the dog able to run upstairs and, and get an EpiPen for me and bring it back is really a life-saving skill to have. But the challenge with the dog as we were going through different organizations to kind of find a match was that all the trainers said, you know, either we find a breed who's athletic enough to do the types of stuff that I do to keep up with me. You can find a dog that's athletic, but they're not going to be intuitive enough to be able to detect. Or you're going to find a dog that's intuitive enough to detect, but they're not going to have the athleticism. So they had told me early on, don't get your don't get your hopes up because it's hard to find those two traits in a single breed. There was a puppy out in Colorado, though, that had potential. Charlene still didn't get her hopes up, but she flew out there before the plan climb for Mount Whitney in order to see if he'd fit the bill. She also climbed a 14er while she was there, Pike's Peak to see if she'd be up for the challenge. I was concerned with how the elevation would play into my condition, if it would make it worse, or I didn't know how that variable would, would factor into the equation. But being able to hike Pike's Peak at the, at the elevation that it was kind of gave me a little more confidence going into doing Whitney. If you'd felt really terrible, do you think you wouldn't have gone up Whitney or tried? I would have done it anyway. <laughs> Before I went to the States, I had two really significant attacks. Like, So when I went to my doctor and I told her that I wanted to hike Mount Whitney, I went to her because I wanted her to get me the Diamox for, for altitude. And she said, well, what do you need that for? And I said, oh, I'm going to go hike 14ers in the U.S. And she was like, no, you're not. Mm. <laughs> but I said, listen, I said, either you're going to give me the medicine and that's going to help me do it, or you're not going to give me the medicine and I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, I kind of twisted her arm on that. And she ended up giving me the prescription, but I had taken a business trip. Um, I was on a business trip in Kazakhstan right before I needed to leave. And I ended up having an incident in Kazakhstan. And then I was home for a day. And then the night before I was supposed to fly out, I had another incident. Um, which like left me incapacitated up to about two hours before I was about to fly. And I was like, I can't not, I can't not go. So I just threw a bunch of stuff in a suitcase and got on the plane. And I was like, at this point, you know, it's over that the incident is over. I'm re I'm recovered. I'm tired because, you know, using that EpiPen just takes a lot out of you. But I was like, it's done. And I can't worry myself with what's the probability that I'll have, you know, a third one. Um, I just ho hopefully, you know, the worst is behind me. So I'm just going to go ahead. So I, I flew out and I did it anyway. But long story short, usually when something bad happens to me, I figure I got through it. So the worst is behind me. I don't really worry about the what if that it might happen again. So um, if I would have woke up that morning at Whitney and I was having symptoms, I, I wouldn't have done it. But but yeah, in the in the days leading up to it, I wasn't I definitely wasn't at 100 percent.
This is obviously a very personal choice. Everyone has different comfort levels with their health, and that's okay. Charlene wanted to make this hike happen, and she was happy to find that Titan, her new service dog, was a great fit. He's a uh, yellow lab. He's a puppy. He's he's younger than most service dogs, so I still have to kind of work through the doggy adolescence type deal. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's like, he's testing my limits on certain things. But he's very attentive. He gets the bag on demand. He will search the house for the bag until he finds it. He doesn't give up, brings it back. If I'm alone, he will bark and alert until help arrives. And I think we, I think he might even be at the detection stage. So the detection stage is something that you can't train a dog to do. It's um, the dog just kind of syncs with your, your chemistry. Hmm. And the idea is that the way my mast cells break down from my condition is similar to the way it happens in an epileptic. So the same way a dog can detect an oncoming seizure would be the same way that they detect the oncoming anaphylaxis for me. But there's no way that you can train it. It's just you end up bonding with the dog and and observing how he responds when you have an attack. Charlene laid out the plan for Mount Whitney. There was 15 of us. We we split up the people into groups of three just for account, accountability and safety reasons. And then each group of three kind of had the relative, um, relatively the same level of athleticism and speed, hiking speed and stuff. And so my personal plan was just to make it up and back. I didn't have any time goals or, or anything like that. I just wanted to um, summit and get back without an incident. Yeah, and so that's what that's what we did. We started out at uh, it was like two o'clock in the morning, and then my group summited at about three thirty, and then we didn't make it off that mountain until after midnight. So it was it was almost twenty four hours of hiking. It was really grueling. How did the landscape change as you as you gained elevation? Like what what did it look like? Did the trees start getting shorter? There's it looks almost moonlike up there. Yeah, so it's interesting because even though it was July, there's still snow up there. We used micro spikes on our hiking boots in certain areas. And, you know, the snow is in places where you're contending with, you know, a drop off on one side and then managing a dog. Um, yeah. on those cliffs was a challenge as well. But yeah, the trees start to disappear at, at about 12,000 feet. Um, and then it's just barren. It's just kind of moon rock. And <laughs> that's what it looks like, moon rock. And there's plants don't grow higher than there. There's, there's, a, there's a little flower. I can't remember what it's called, but it only grows at the higher elevation. So you see these these weird little, fl- these beautiful little flowers like growing out of the rocks, but that's the only thing that's growing up there. <laughs> it was a little chilly when we started and then it kind of warmed up and then you hit snow. And then I think it warmed up again, actually. Um, but then at the summit, it was cold again. So, you know, you're, you, you have to have layers on your putting your layers on, taking them off, and, you know, you're going through a a couple different climates going up. It was more challenging than Pikes Peak, even though, like, Mount Whitney is, I think it's 14,508 is the elevation. So it's only a few hundred feet higher than Pikes Peak, but because of the terrain, that's what made it 
more challenging than Pikes Peak because of the narrow passageways and the snow, you know, and just the threat of of slipping and falling and sliding down (laughs) a mountain. And especially with the dog, because Titan, what we didn't know was that Titan loves the snow. And (laughs) Titan loves rolling in the snow where people haven't walked. But the the issue with that is that so there would be like a little a little narrow passageway where you could basically only wide enough to put one foot in front of the other. And so I was challenged to like keep him either directly behind me following in this corridor or directly in front of me. Well, Titan would want to play in the snow that led to the drop off that, you know, you're falling off a cliff. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> get back over here. And so every time we hit a patch of snow, it was just like fighting him to get him back on the trail. At that point, he just wanted to be a puppy, you know, (laughs) like get this. I'm not a working dog anymore. I just want to roll around in the snow. And I'm like, no, you're going to kill us both. (laughs) So so that was, that was a little rough, but, um, but he was, he was good in every other part, but it was just like, every time I saw snow, I was like, Oh no, here we go. go." (laughs) How did it feel like when you hit the summit? It was it was great. I mean, it was like, okay, I I made it. I made it. But it sinks in at that point that you're not done. <laughs> <laughs> right? You make it to the summit, but you still have to come down. And you're just so exhausted once you get up there because going up is is the harder part on your body, right? And at that point, you know, you we were had been hiking from, you know, um, two o'clock in the morning until three thirty. And then you're thinking, oh, my God, now I got to come back down. Like there's no rest for the weary. We 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 sat up and, you know, we took pictures at the summit and we had some lunch. But then we had to put all our stuff back on and hike right back down. And there's there's no break. There's no like you know, rest area, like you pull off on the freeway and have a cup of coffee or whatever. It's like, you have to keep hiking. Nobody's coming to get you. There's no (laughs) fast way down. There's just the legs that got you up are the same legs that have to get you down. And they are already exhausted from going up. So yeah, the excitement of summiting is quickly dampened by the realization that you still have to get off the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) The excitement and exhaustion was complicated by the start of an attack. Knowing her body helped. I started feeling sick at the summit, and I just took an antihistamine right away. I didn't really tell anybody what was going on, because there's no point in getting other people kind of riled up. But I know that I tend to have the reaction when my body is going into recovery mode, so it was important for me to get moving again to keep myself going. I couldn't rest. So I just said, Hey, you know, we gotta, we started, we have, we need to start um, descending this mountain so we can get back, you know, before it's dark. And lucky for me, there was another lady who was getting some altitude sickness as well. So I kind of hid behind her excuse of coming down fast too. So we started descending pretty fast. And as long as I kept moving, I felt like I, I was fine. So after the, the, the antihistamine, if I get it in my system early on and I keep moving and don't let my body go into recovery, rest and recovery mode, then I can tend to, to hold it off. And, and I think that's, that's how it was, how I was successfully able to do it. Cause then probably 
a few hours into it, I wasn't feeling anything. I was just, you know, feeling the general fatigue from, from having hiked for so long, but I wasn't feeling the anaphylaxis, the itching and the hives and the elevated body temperature. I wasn't feeling any of that. So, so I was happy, but it was, it was scary at that point though, because I knew that if I did go into full anaphylaxis at that time, there's no, there's no recovery for me there. There's no, uh, there's no emergency responder that's going to come. I had my EpiPens, I had my medicine. And once I, once I use the EpiPen, it, it takes me about an hour, hour and a half to, to just kind of come back to some normal state. But at that point, I'm usually so spent physically that it would have been a challenge for me to hike back down off the mountain at that point. So I probably would have had to stay at the summit. There's like a shelter at at the top of the summit. And I would have felt bad for having other hikers up there waiting with me overnight on the mountain because while I'm recovering from anaphylaxis. So at that point I started, I started thinking about the what ifs, you know, if it, if it started to escalate. Um, but then I just try to think back to, well, but it's not the, you know, you start talking to yourself, um, to get yourself out of the what if phase and to focus on the what is phase. And the what is was that I had done what I needed to do to kind of mitigate it. And I just needed to be confident that the medicine was going to work and that what I had used in the past to kind of keep my body going, which was, you know, continuing at the level of exercise that I was doing that, that it wouldn't escalate any further. And so that's what I did. And so that was really just the one scare that I had during that, during that entire trip. That's great. I love that expression The you know, not concentrating on the what ifs, but concentrating on the what is. That's such a, that's just a good lesson for even if you're, you don't have an allergy like you have, you know, like there's so many points in life where you want to spiral and, and start just becoming anxious and worried. And I, I just love that phrase, the way you, way you said that. Yeah. Yeah. It's good because I think if you, if you focus on the what ifs, you're almost manifesting the thing that you're most worried about. But if you focus on the what is, you're manifesting the good of what's occurring at that present moment. So yeah, that's what I try and do. Did you go right home after Mount Whitney? Like, what did the timeline look like? Oh, so we got back to the Bay Sunday, and then I flew back out to London on Tuesday. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I only got to ride the high for a little while, and then I was back <laughs> on a plane. <laughs> back to reality. Oh, and of course, it was dark and gloomy when I got back to London. And it was just like, oh, I missed the sunshine already. Mm. How did you feel when you were flying back? And it sounds like you were a little bummed just because of that. You know, there is that trip high and then the actual physical high of like accomplishing something like that. But what did you feel like you wanted to carry home with you to to London? I felt it was a little anticlimactic, right? Because you do this great thing and then you're like, oh, but now I'm I'm going back to, to reality and I won't be able to hike these mountains again because, again, you know, London is flat. 
and and I was starting to think, you know, what's what's the next thing for me? Like that was that was a huge accomplishment for me for a number of reasons. And so I started thinking, well, what's my next big thing? But then I was also just kind of thinking the whole idea of being an expat is like being committed to two countries that aren't necessarily committed to you because I felt like I wasn't necessarily leaving home because I didn't feel like the Bay felt like my home anymore, but then I was going to my home and that wasn't really my home either. So there was this other kind of piece of me that was like transition feels like home. I don't know. It's kind of hard to express. And I felt sad because for me, like, the hiking feels like home. That was part of the revelation, I think, of that trip was that as I was trying to like figure out what I felt in different places that I was at over those few weeks when I was away from London, I was trying to figure out where home was. And home felt for me like like hiking and like being out in nature, like where could I be or where could I go where I could experience that more? And the Bay, I'm just saying the Bay doesn't feel like home anymore because it's like, you know, somebody is renting my house. You know, I'm living in a hotel when I go to the Bay. And even though my friends are still there, you know, it doesn't doesn't feel like home home because you're not really going to like a physical home. You're going to uh, to a hotel. So it feels more like a, a business trip or a vacation or something. But then when I come to London, you know, even though I'm coming to a house that I live in, um, it's work. You know, when I'm in London, I'm kind of on duty 24 seven. So that doesn't feel like home either. So I just started thinking about, you know, how do you how do you define home and what feels like home? And, you know, how do I um, infuse more of what I felt hiking Whitney and hiking Pikes Peak into my existence here for the for the rest of the time that I'm here in London like how do you make home yeah so are there still still questions for you kind of working on the answers yeah to a certain extent I mean I think I've kind of you know I'm settled in the fact of this is where I am this is what I have to do. Um, I'm more confident in my ability to, to get out and do more exploring. So I'm definitely going to start doing, um, I'll probably do some exploring in, in Norway and Scotland hiking wise, because now that I have Titan, I, you know, I'm more comfortable going out by myself and I would really, really like to do Mount Kilimanjaro, but I'll have to see if I can, you know, the, the implicate the, the health and safety implications for, for Titan for doing that. So I don't, don't know if that one's possible, but, but yeah, so I'm looking forward to doing more exploring now. And I think I can, I'm kind of committed to kind of weaving that into my schedule a little bit more. I don't know how much more, how more frequently I'll go to return to the States to do hiking. I think now I feel like it's time to explore some new areas that I haven't explored. So I'll probably do some more like international type stuff. But but yeah, I feel I feel more confident in my ability to manage this condition and just more confident in, in being out on my own because I've been able to manage it successfully now. So it's a bright future, I think.
earlier in the conversation when you were you know working through this and and now continuing to manage your allergy um you i think you said something about doing it anyway that like it wasn't gonna completely stop you what what would you say to for other people who have like physical challenges that could get in the way of the kind of pursuits that they might be dreaming of you know i um for me, I kind of feel like throughout my life, you know, bad stuff happens. It happens to everybody. But the key to thriving is understanding that your power is really in how you mitigate the impacts of the challenge as opposed to how you manage the challenge itself. You can't change what's happened to you. You can't change, you know, an illness that you can have. You can't make anything go away, but you can manage how you relate and respond to it. And I think so often people get caught up with, you know, there's one way of doing things, you know, there's, there's only one type of hiker. They've got two legs, two arms. They, they, you know, they're an elite athlete. They've got all the perfect equipment to go up a mountain and that's, that's your perfect hiker. But in reality, that's not what it really is. You've got people who are hiking that have hidden health conditions, hidden heart conditions, all kinds of things that, you know, they're taking a risk every day going up the mountain and they don't even know it. And then you also have people, I can't remember the name of the organization, but it's Wounded Warriors or something like that, where um, you have people who are, you know, amputees that are hiking and are doing technical climbs. So it's a matter of finding your resilience by understanding that your power lies in how you mitigate a challenge. And that means finding new ways of doing the same stuff that everybody does with, with all their faculties. Like there's, it's where kind of diversity fits in, right? Because there's a, there's a a typical way, there's a routine way that most stuff gets done. And if you didn't have those kind of outliers that are, you know, an amputee or somebody with exercise induced anaphylaxis or someone who's blind or somebody who has this unique challenge, I call them unique superpowers because if you didn't have those people, then you would always look at doing things the same way that everybody else looks at it. But when you have that challenge, that person has this gift then of being able to come up with a creative solution of doing the same thing that everybody else does. And that just opens the door to additional creativity from other people on doing the same thing. And that's really the power of diversity. For Charlene, the reward outweighs the risk. And her tolerance for risk is a little higher because of what she values. But she got to this place by developing an understanding of the risk for herself. By getting to know and sit with the what-ifs, she's able to focus on what is. It kind of reminds me of what Brene Brown said. Quote, you can't really be brave without vulnerability. Unquote. If I would have told my doctor before I was going to leave, hey, I just had two episodes, she would have said, okay, you need to stay home and rest. But then that would have prevented me from, you know, experiencing the kind of glory and the the benefits of hiking Mount Whitney. The fear that she would have had, right, is transferred to me in the form of, well, just don't do it. But you can't let fear stop you. I mean, courage is, is doing things in the face of fear. And when I originally asked her for the Diamox, and I said I was going to do it even if she didn't give me the Diamox, I told her, I said, you know, I, 
I have this condition. There's nothing that I can do to change it. Absolutely nothing that I can do to change it. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to stay at home and sit on the couch and hope that something doesn't happen because that's like stopping my life. I can't stop my life because the universe sent me some weird shit. <laughs> you know, I've got to, I've got to find a way. I j it just means that I have to find a new way of being. And for me, that new way of being is being able to control the impact. So, you know, having my EpiPens, having my medicine, um, making sure I'm well rested, you know, being more in tune with my body to be able to be aware of changes as they're occurring so that I can, I can nip an attack in the bud um, as soon as possible. And having Titan as my last resort, you know, in the event that I'm zoned out and, you know, I don't pick up on some, some physical cues that I should. So, as long as I'm doing everything that I can to mitigate it, then, you know, I, I have to go for it. I can't, I can't fear an, an eventuality that may not occur because then my life stops and you have to chase life. I think we're, we're here for a finite amount of time. You got to chase life. Part of life is kind of mitigating hurdles. I think that's really the purpose of it, really. If you didn't have the challenges, what what a boring life it would be, right? If you didn't have these little these little problem solving things, you know, that pop up in your in your timeline occasionally. But she asked me one time, my doctor asked me one time, "Are you afraid of dying?" And I said, "No, I'm I'm not afraid of dying. What I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of dying like a coward." And for me, dying like a coward is allowing this invisible threat to control my life to the extent that I'm not living. That to me is death. Even though I may still be breathing and my heart is still beating, if I'm not doing anything because I'm afraid of what this invisible condition is gonna do to me, that to me is death. And that to me is a cowardly death. So if I'm out hiking and something happens and you know, by the grace of God, the mitigations that I usually use to prevent an attack don't work, that one time and the worst happens, then that's just the way it was supposed to be. I was living my life full out and something happened. It was just my time. But what I'll never do in any situation is let fear paralyze me. Um, I feel like there's always a workaround. There is always a workaround. It may take you a little bit longer to figure out what your unique workaround is for whatever condition you have, for whatever variables you're trying to mitigate, but there is always a workaround. You just have to find it and you can't ever stop looking for the workaround. And you're still moving. Yeah, I'm still moving. <laughs> <laughs> You ran a half marathon when you got home too, right? I did. Well, it was it was a ten k. It was a ten k. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was fun too. That's <laughs> impressive. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I'm unstoppable now. I'm like, okay, you know, Mount Whitney for me was my testing ground. Like, can I can I do that? If I can do Whitney, then I can do anything now. Like, my confidence is back for for a little bit of time. Like, I was questioning my abilities, but. Now that I've finished Whitney, I feel like I'm back to my old self in terms of I can do anything. I can do anything. Oh, I believe it. That's awesome. That's like, I mean, that mountain too, 14,508 feet. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big mountain. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you so much to Charlene for sharing her story. I'll include a link to her Instagram and the Heat Hiking Group in the show notes and episode landing page on she-explorers.com. Big thank you to our sponsor, Merrill. If you like hearing these Merrill stories, send us a message. It's always great to hear from you. Learn more about She Explorers by heading to our website, she-explorers.com, and support the show by leaving us a review wherever you listen and joining the She Explorers podcast Facebook group. With over 5,000 members, it's an encouraging place to share your outdoor endeavors, projects, and to connect with previous guests of the show. You can also find She Explorers on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those social media platforms. Music is by Maiden, Lee Rosevere, Kay Angle, via the Free Music Archive, using a Creative Commons Attributions License. Until next week, have fun out there. <laughs>